Well, is it Sunday morning or Sunday night? <laughs> we'll stand anyway while we turn to the gospel according to Luke. Chapter 22. Father, when we come to church and to assemble together week in and week out during the week on these Sundays, we are very much in need of a little taste of heaven to remind us, Lord, of the glory of Your kingdom, the glory of our God, and to remind us of the glory that yet awaits us, of the day that one day what we have done here tonight will no longer be through a glass darkly, but it will be face to face. And we thank You for blessing our time of worshiping You tonight. We thank You for inhabiting our praises. We sensed Your pleasure that You received from what came to You this evening, and that's always a blessing as well. Would you meet us now as we study your word this evening, as we make our way through the scriptures and now focus on these uh, vital moments and, and majestic hours, Jesus, of your life in coming to provide us with redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and everlasting life in a relationship with you. And we ask these things in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We pick things up in uh, Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 31. Now, each of the four Gospels uh, record uh, Jesus' prediction to Peter that he will deny him, that Peter will deny uh, uh, Jesus. And, um, and, and it relates it in terms of how that gospel wanted to emphasize certain points. And Luke alone, though, as a gospel, tells us uh, Satan's part uh, in it. And so the Lord said, Simon, Simon, uh, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. So it's always a little uh, uh, concerning to realize uh, that the devil knows our name, uh, and he knows us uh, by name. And here, uh, the word, uh, when he says, Satan has asked for you, that's in the plural. Satan asked for all 11 of the disciples. Judas has now gone his own way, wants to sift all of them. But Jesus focuses upon uh, Simon in particular and in terms of, how the sifting is going to affect him. So Satan asked for him with the desire that he would be able to sift Peter as wheat. Now, a sifting process in the ancient world was something that everyone was very, very familiar with. They would harvest the wheat, and as you would harvest the wheat and the, the, the grains and uh, bring them into the barn, of course, the meat of the wheat is covered by chaff. It's covered by a, a hull. And uh, you can't get to the meat, what is valuable about the wheat plant and nutritious, without first removing the chaff or, or, or the hull. 
And so what they would do typically in those days is they would have, if they could find a great flat stone area that they could dump wheat upon, they'd put a great pole in the middle of that area, and then they would uh, have a, a huge log that they would then put sticks inside of uh, in order that uh, an oxen would then pull that log over that wheat again and again and again and again in order to crush that wheat to separate the chaff, which is worthless, from the wheat. And that's what Satan wanted to do with Peter here. And that was the form that the spiritual warfare was going to take. So if you've ever been in a day or a week or a month of your Christian life where it felt like, I think the devil is rolling over me with a huge log with sticks in it over and over and over again. That's the intensity of, of the warfare and the sifting that can take place. So the sifter is the devil, and uh, Simon is the one that is going to be sifted. And Simon is actually, uh, like it, all of us in, to some degree, very much in need of this sifting. Simon, again, like all of us, uh, as we begin to serve the Lord, as God brings us into His kingdom, we are a combination of what is valuable to God and what is not at all valuable to Him, what is only worthy uh, of the fire. And so he looks at us, and he looked at Peter, and we can see ourselves in Peter, and he sees the potential for Peter. But he also sees that there's an awful lot of chaff in his life. We look, we look at Peter in the Scriptures, and there's an awful lot to like about him. So we see him through the Gospels. He's a likable fellow. We see him in the book of Acts. Whoa, spiritual dynamo. If we ever want to be encouraged in trial, we go to his two epistles, First and Second Peter. So we esteem him highly. But at this point in his kind of refinement and preparation for what God, how God wants to use him, there's a lot that isn't uh, that uh, pleasant about him. Uh, he has, uh, even as we've seen through the gospel, uh, on a regular basis, quite willing to uh, fight with the other apostles over who is going to be the greatest and laying the case for his own greatness. Move on to see a little bit more of it. Jesus then said to him, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, you will fail. When you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. He said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny me three, uh, deny three times that you even know me. And here is Peter. He loves the Lord. He's very confident. You say, I'm going to deny you. You've given me a heads up on this. I wouldn't have denied you before. I certainly am not going to be deny you having been forewarned. And he is the picture through the Gospels of this impulsiveness, of this great self-confidence. And, and this was going to be a detriment to him, and it needed to be removed from his life. And the way that his pride and his uh, self-exaltation, you remember in the other Gospels when he 
when Jesus uh, spoke about uh, his denial, he said, though they all deny you, pointing at the other ten, I will never deny you. And again, we see that pride. We see that sense of superiority. We see a self-confidence that uh, is is a a carnal self-confidence. And so the Lord is going to let him uh, go out and endeavor now to do things in, in, in those characteristics and allow the devil to come in and sift him, and he's going to end up falling uh, flat on his uh, face. And I think that any of us who've ever raised children, but you don't have to raise children to see it. We can see it from our own lives where you can look at a child and you raise that child, and when you raise a child, you know their strengths, you know their weaknesses. You know what is wheat, you know what is chaff. And many times we raise them to the point of adult life, and we've done what we can to remove the chaff from their life, that which will be a hindrance uh, to them, but we haven't been able to remove all of it from their lives. And we can look at a child and we can and look and say, they're going to do just great, and especially in the kingdom of God, but uh, somebody's going to have to uh, whoop their backside in a way that we couldn't. And somebody's going to need to show them they're not as hot shots that they think they are, and we can look at our children and say, that child really needs a major uh, failing experience in their life to be well-rounded and to have the arrogance and the pride and the prejudice and the sense of superiority removed from their life. And, and then so God is so faithful then to do that uh, in their lives and in our lives. So he warns uh, uh, Simon that this is coming his way. And then those two wonderful words there in verse 32, but I, in contrast to Satan and the plans that he has, uh, Jesus said, but I, a different plan for you. I've prayed for you uh, that, and here's the specific prayer, that your faith should not fail. The Lord did not pray that he would not fail. He needed to fail. In my opinion, he did. Uh, Even as I have needed to fail many times to learn important lessons in life. But Jesus said, I prayed for you, not that you would escape the sifting, not even that you would escape the experience of failing and falling flat on your face and ultimately weeping bitter uh, tears over the experience. But my prayer for you in the midst of it is not that you would be spared that, but that your faith should not fail in the midst of so uh, great a fall and, and, uh, and such a great wake-up call to who you are and, and uh, what you are and aren't and what only God can be in your life. And then Jesus infuses hope here in the situation, and he said, and when, that's another word that's worth underlining or circling, and when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So he infuses hope in the situation. And and, uh, and no one that speaks to somebody about a great failure coming in their life or a great failure that they've come out of, 
is, does any help to the person unless we infuse hope into that situation as well. So when he uses the word when, he tells Peter that's not going to have the final say. Not only is it not going to have the final say, your failure, your sifting uh, in your life, but it's not even going to become what you are uh, largely known for in human history and among the body of Christ. So when you go into, uh, say, a counseling uh, session, typically with a, a professional counselor and you know, the world is collapsing and all we can see are the waves and the mess of of all of it, very often he or she will say, how do you think you'll view this in a year? How do you think you'll view this in five years? And what they've introduced now is a longer timeline uh, that there's going to be a year, that there's going to be a five years after this. And how do you think you'll see it in that longer timeline? And it infuses hope that there's going to be an after to the failure or the trial or the difficulty that I'm in. And so he says, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. That he would return was never in doubt because Jesus was interceding for him in the trial, even as the Bible says that he intercedes for us. I think it's one of the most wonderful thoughts that any Christian can have in any circumstance that, that we're in the middle of in life is to realize that He is interceding for you. By name, personally, interceding for us. And so He said, when you've returned to Me, strengthen your brethren. In other words, strengthen your brethren out of what you have learned in this great failure within your life. And what did Peter learn from this uh, great kind of sifting that occurred in his life. Well, one thing he learned for sure was about uh, the grace of God. And that's why uh, when Jesus says, strengthen your brethren, uh, Peter now becomes a a source of strength to us, especially after we've uh, failed massively and uh, been sifted in this way when we see him then in the book of Acts. And there are two, no, uh, there aren't Uh, two no more um, encouraging letters in the whole New Testament than 1st and 2nd Peter for Christians who are going through trial. And because they're so seasoned by the Holy Spirit through this vessel of Peter and what what he went through. And what does Peter close his second epistle with? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in His grace. And he learned here in in all of this that everything he would ever be, everything that he would ever do had nothing to do with his I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I know I can, I know I can, or his self-confidence, or his determination, uh, uh, um, or even his love for God. He truly loved God and he's going to deny Him three times but that everything he is and everything he uh, does going forward is a product of the grace of God. And so it is with us. I think it's one of the the great blessings um, for me. You might have noticed that my my beard has gone gray and um, used to be brown when I was younger. And I would uh, go around town and people would say, you look like Kenny Loggins. And uh, I'm not Kenny Loggins, trust me. Uh, 
but, but one of the nice things about getting older as a Christian is that as much as we understand how gracious God is uh, when we're younger, and as wonderful as that is, it's something that only ripens, it only gets better with age. And that recognition that everything we have, everything that we are, everything that bit of fruit that He brings out of our lives is because of the greatness of His grace. And so Peter is one of the great lessons concerning Peter's life is that there is not just life after a significant sifting or failing in the midst of spiritual warfare, but there is a significant and spiritually meaningful and impactful life on the other side of that. And there isn't going to be a single one of us that doesn't serve the Lord, that he doesn't have, that, that serves the Lord, that he doesn't have to root out some self-confidence, uh, some uh, comparative spirit with other people, believing that God uses us because of this, because we have more of this than they do, and, and removing that usually through failure. And so often we can become so discouraged by that that we think there is no future on the other side of it, and yet there is. A very important uh, uh, reason for Peter's future following this was God's grace, but as we'll see perhaps tonight, it, it is the baptism with the Holy Spirit that he would receive on the day of Pentecost. And so Jesus then spoke to them in uh, verse 35, and, uh, and he said to them, uh, when I sent you out without money bag or knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? And so the, we remember earlier in their ministry, they went out, so did 70 other uh, disciples. Jesus said, don't take any extra clothing, don't take any extra shoes, don't take any extra money. A workman's worthy of his hire. Go out and you'll be taken care of by the people who hear the message that, and the invitation from God to enter the kingdom of God that you encounter. And so he said, when you went out with nothing, did you lack anything? Did you die out there? Did you starve to death? Did you, your shoes wear out? And they said, no, we didn't lack anything. And so what Jesus is doing now in that word then in verse 36, he is now going to move them from, in the light of his coming death, burial, and resurrection, he is going to be leaving them in terms of his physical presence with them. This will be a great change uh, for them. And now he addresses some things in terms of ministry in their lives and in our lives that need to change with his ascension into heaven so that uh, they didn't and that we don't live uh, uh, encumbered by uh, outmoded uh, ministry models. So that was a model uh, for at one time in Jesus' public ministry, but now it was to be something different. And we can really appreciate this with Jesus. Imagine if he didn't change this, what we would be doing today. You can't go out with even an extra t-shirt. You can't go out with an extra penny in your pocket to go serve the Lord or an extra pair of shoes. Or, and, and, and we would glom on to that uh, old outmoded ministry model if Jesus didn't inform us of that. And so he said to them, but now, 
He who has uh, a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment then and buy one. For I say to you that, uh, that uh, this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And so he's saying, my death, burial, and resurrection is coming and I'm going to be numbered among the transgressors, and moving forward from that uh, then will be this new uh, ministry uh, model of looking at things. And so they can uh, look at things and, and, uh, uh, and, and not view uh, necessary clothing or uh, having a, uh, a few dollars in your pocket or a sword, some kind of means of self-defense as, as being viewed as unspiritual. And so he, he's, he uh, uh, talks there at the end of verse 36, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And uh, that got the attention uh, of the eleven. Uh, weapons. Uh, it, 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 was, it was like somebody mentioned a, a, a lightsaber. Uh, to uh, men today, if there, was, if there really was such a thing. There probably is, but they haven't unveiled it yet. But um, so they said to Jesus, uh, look here, uh, here are two bags of money. No, that's not what they focused on. Look here, there are two swords. And Jesus, don't you worry about that. Don't get your dauber down and get all depressed and everything about being numbered among the transgressors. You know, all 11 of us are sticking with you, and we got two swords. Such reassurance uh, that the Son of Man had. And then Jesus said to them, it's enough. He saw that conversation was going nowhere. He didn't say that two swords were enough. He just said that's enough of this conversation. And maybe he was thinking, these people can't get baptized in the Holy Spirit fast enough as far as I'm, <laughs> I'm concerned. Probably not. But. And then coming out of Jerusalem, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and the Mount of Olives sits on across the Kidron Valley on the eastern side uh, of, of Jerusalem. And, and he goes there with the disciples, notice, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. So they had a favorite spot there in the Mount of Olives, and it was called, known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where Jesus is going to spend the evening in prayer prior to uh, beginning the day that would uh, culminate in his, his crucifixion on the cross at Calvary. And so he takes them uh, over there, and I like it in verse uh, 40, and when they came to the place. So they had a the place. And it's really nice to have a the place somewhere in our life, some chair, some room, something that is uh, in, invaluable to us because that's where we meet with the Lord. And so he brought them to this place. He brings them to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane at that time had a, a great uh, kind of uh, a mill or a pressing stone in the midst of it, and it was surrounded by uh, olive trees, and it had an olive press. 
So they would harvest the olives, then they would put the the pits down into the press and the olives, and then they would be crushed under the stone. The oil would come out and they would collect that. And the Garden of Gethsemane is the perfect place uh, in, in terms of the imagery of it for what happens with Jesus there because Gethsemane means uh, the pressing or the olive pressing. And Jesus is going to come under a pressing uh, underneath the weight of something there that is uh, far greater than any olive or olive pit uh, comes under in an olive press. And so he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And so uh, we know from the other Gospels, he leaves eight of the disciples in that location. He takes Peter, uh, 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 Peter, James, and John with him then a little bit further in, and uh, he leaves them there, and, and then he went about a stone's throw from them and knelt down and prayed. So he calls on them to pray that they won't enter into temptation so they can withstand what's coming uh, next. But what has to happen here has to happen between him and God the Father. There would be no place for uh, us adding anything to uh, his prayers. And you notice the prayer that he lifted up um, uh, to God the Father. He said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And here we get a picture of the, um, the emotional and spiritual price that Jesus paid in order to bear our sins upon the cross. Um, when uh, earlier in, in his ministry, in John chapter 12, I think it is, uh, Jesus, as he addressed the physical uh, torment that he would experience upon the cross, uh, he didn't express any kind of fear uh, about that or any anxiousness about that. He said, uh, in essence, this is what I've come to do. So he's agonizing over something very, very different here than, oh no, they're going to thrash me physically tomorrow and, and crucify me. And what it is that, that, that was the weight that, that he bore in, in this Garden of Gethsemane is revealed to us in those two words, this cup. If it is your will, take this cup from me. And very often in the Scriptures, uh, the cup represents the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And what Jesus is talking about here in terms of the cup that would be taken away from Him would be the wrath that He would bear upon the cross, uh, the full wrath that, every, uh, that the sin of every single person in human history deserves. He knew He was going to bear that on the cross. And that's what takes him to this place uh, in, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the thing that mortifies him, so to speak. And so he, he's willing to go, but he says to the Father, if there is any other way for what to happen, any other way for mankind to be saved, 
than what it is that is going to happen to me on that cross in bearing the righteous judgment that mankind's sins deserve, then let this cup pass away from me. And what was heaven's answer? Silence. Silence. There is no other way. There was no other way. If there had been any other way for our sins to be forgiven, then the cup would have been removed from him. But there was no other way. And he uh, made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, I, I don't know that this is true in particular, but I try to understand. Here you have the Son of God. Uh, and he comes from the perfect holy glory of heaven. He has never sinned uh, in, his, in his life and in his ministry, never will. Uh, all I know is sin. All I know is a fallen, broken world and, and dealing with the sins of other people even as they have to deal with my, my sins. And... And uh, I, I remember seeing a show many, many, many years ago. I don't even know what it was or whatever, but they, they strapped this person into a, a, like an electric chair seat, and then they just showed all of the atrocities of human history on this entire uh, panoramic screens and, and just showing it to him until finally he cracks and he breaks under the weight of, of seeing all of that. And I imagine, take the, uh, 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 someone of, of a comparative innocence in, among human beings and strap a four-year-old into that seat and then expose him to something he's never seen before, never participated in before, and uh, imagine the weight of it, the trauma of it, and here is Jesus, he takes my sin, your sin, and he bore it on that cross. I don't know what that was like for him. I just know that if there was any other way to save me and you, and not have that happen, he wanted to do that. But there was no other way. And then the submission to his will, not my will, but yours be done. And of course, in this he's an example to all of us. Uh, I was reading the Daily Bread this morning, and uh, I think it was about a missionary, and uh, you say, you think? I mean, you just read it this morning. Ah, I have such a memory, such a memory this one has. But I, I think it was a missionary, um, and uh, uh, no, no, uh, yeah, missionary, and then she uh, uh, was attacked and taken captive and violated and all of this. And in the midst of the greatness of her trial and her difficulty, she was asking herself, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Is this worth it? And we all understand that. And then the Lord spoke to her heart and told her that the question is not, is this worth it? But is He worth it? And that's an entirely different way to look at things. And, and, and hear this surrender to His will. I don't know why He does what He does in our lives, why He allows what He, he uh, allows, but anything He calls us to, any sacrifice He calls us uh, to make, 
He is uh, worthy of that sacrifice and the surrender to it. And then an angel appeared uh, to him from heaven, uh, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And, and uh, uh, imagine the pressing that is on him now. Again, the imagery of the oil coming out of, of the olive uh, pit there. And in the great pressing that is required for that, here's this pressing and uh, the sweat coming out in like coagulated drops of blood, big drops of blood dropping to the ground. And and three times he asked the Father the the same thing, and each time uh, there was uh, no reply for, for a change in plan. And when he rose up from prayer and he had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And so he said to them, why do you sleep? And I'm inclined to believe that there's a period of, uh, of time that goes on between the two things he says to them. Why do you sleep? And he continued to let them sleep. And then when the commotion began to come in, uh, the great crowd uh, of uh, religious law enforcement and, and Judas and the, and the chief priests and all, when they, he heard them coming now into this place uh, that only Judas could have pointed out to them, Uh, He said to them, rise and pray, lest you enter into uh, temptation. And so while he was uh, speaking, behold, a multitude. And we know from the other Gospels that the the chief priests and the religious leaders sent kind of their, um, there was a security force, a military force that was Jewish that protected the uh, quietness and kept order in the area of the temple. And so they're pretty rough-and-tumble guys, and they, they sent that force uh, with, uh, along with Judas and, and uh, some of the others in order to make sure that he, he doesn't get away. He, he ends up being arrested. And then, uh, behold, a multitude, and he who was called uh, Judas. And then here is that phrase again, one of the twelve. And, and, and that's how he describes Judas. I mean, there's no more uh, damning way to describe uh, and, and the, the shame of what Judas uh, did in betraying Jesus than to say he was one of the twelve, one to whom Jesus had done only good to in, in his uh, his life, and one who knew of Jesus' uh, innocence and the fact that he, he was who he claimed to be. And th- Judas then went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. And so he kissed him. And you might remember that in the other Gospels that we're told that Judas had made that a prearranged uh, signal to the Jewish religious leaders, the one that I kissed, that's the one you want to arrest. So as if you just couldn't get any lower in terms of betrayal to be betrayed with a uh, kiss. And uh, Jesus said to him, and if Judas thought Jesus didn't know what was going on here, uh, Jesus makes it clear that he does. He said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And imagine 
Imagine trying to live with that after that. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And now remember the other disciples, they don't know for certain who the betrayer would be. And then now Jesus exposes him as the one who would do it. But here, Jesus, of course, is not surprised. But to, it, it is so appalling that it is worthy of the mention, betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. And when those uh, around him saw what was going to happen, uh, this Jesus is going to end getting arrested, they said to Jesus, uh, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Uh, you want us to fight to defend you. And, um, and it's commendable on one level as they uh, uh, make that offer. And uh, before they can get any kind of an answer, we're told in one of them, uh, you might guess. John tells us it's Peter. Uh, I don't know how well Peter and, and uh, John are getting along in heaven right now over that disclosure, but actually the Holy Spirit did it, right? I'm kidding. And so then one of them struck the servant of the high priest, and he cut off his right ear. So this is the great damage that Peter was able to do. Now, to cut off the right ear of another person, if you're right-handed, and he was most likely right-handed, um, the servant had to have his back to Peter. So, he should stick to fishing, right? And no sword play on things. And Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched uh, Malchus's ear and, and he healed him. And then Peter said uh, to the chief priests, the captains of the temple and the elders, they had all come to him to arrest him. He said, have you come out as against a robber with clubs, with swords and clubs when I was with you daily in the temple? Uh, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And so Jesus' question of them, he confronts them, their cowardice in what they're doing in all of this, their hypocrisy. In other words, he says to them, on any given day, you could have come and done this in, in the area of the temple. Done it in full daylight. I was available to, to you at, at any time. And, uh, but he's letting them know he knows they didn't want to do it publicly, but they wanted to do it in the dark uh, of the morning. But it was their hour, and their hour was being dominated by the power of darkness. And then having arrested him, uh, they uh, led him and brought him. And that's interesting is that arrested him, led him, uh, brought him. And here you have mere human beings and uh, very um, ugly human beings uh, on top of it. And uh, imagine having to live with the fact of having arrested him and led him and then bringing him uh, into the high priest's uh, home now for uh, the trial related to uh, 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 before him, them related to that. Peter then followed Jesus at a distance. And here you have one of the great classic lessons related to not denying the Lord Jesus. Uh, the first one is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, but not to follow Jesus at a distance. 
And when he had kindled, they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, probably the entire arresting party. Peter is uh, among them. Peter sat down among them, and he, and he enjoys the, uh, the, the setting of the fire with him. And so the, the fellowship with, uh, with the ungodly. And, and a, a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. And uh, that whole sword thing probably didn't help him. Uh, but he denied, uh, but, uh, uh, he denied the Lord, saying, woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you are also of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And then after an hour had passed by, another one confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also with, with, was with him, for he is a Galilean. They recognized him from the north by ba- on the basis of his accent. It's different than a Jerusalem accent. In the same way that somebody from the south has an accent or from Boston has an accent, that, that uh, locates them. And so, he's a Galilean. Jesus is from the Galilee. Uh, he's got to be with him. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. He pretends he doesn't understand the question. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So apparently, at that moment in time, Peter, uh, Jesus was being taken across the courtyard uh, of the... the um, uh, the, the high priest's uh, home, and their eyes lock, and then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter went away, and he wept bitterly. And the idea here is, in terms of wept, the word that's used uh, by the Holy Spirit here, the Greek word, is it means to sob convulsively. The tears pour down from his eyes. His whole body is shaking as he experiences the the bitter sorrow of having failed the Lord in in an area where he he had just hours before said there was no way that this could happen. I don't know if you've ever watched a, a grown human being cry like that. It's one of the most powerful things you'll ever see. And, and especially in a, a regret over something that they've done or some failure. And especially to see a man cry in that way. And so here we see him confronted now uh, with uh, the, the truth of Jesus' prophecy here. And despite all of his self-confidence, despite uh, all of his love for God, despite all of his determination and his power and his strength, though they all deny you, I will not deny you. He denies him three times. And here is the great sifting that occurs because the Peter that we will see later now exhibits none of those things. He won't be perfect, but he won't be like this ever again in his life. And then you go into the book of Acts chapter 2 and you see an entirely different Peter rise up off of the pages of Scripture. And you see this tremendous instrument of God, even on the day of Pentecost where he stands up and he preaches the gospel, not to 
two young women and some man in a courtyard in the high priest's house. But there are hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem at this time. And they've come to the wrong conclusion about what has happened here in the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the Christians in that upper room that Jesus had promised. And they thought they were all drunk. And Peter gets up and he preaches the first sermon in the Christian era. And 3,000 people are saved. And he does it unflinchingly. He is an entirely different man. And the difference between the first Peter and the second Peter was the promise of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verses 8, that they were to tarry in Jerusalem until they received the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which would provide them with the power to be a witness to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It is the power to live the Christian life in any environment we find ourselves in, in the entire world. Wow! And Peter received that on the day of Pentecost, and, and here he stands and he preaches, and he's a spiritually dynamic all the way through the rest of his life. And church tradition tells us at the end of his life, you remember Jesus at the end of the, John's gospel told Peter that he would end up being crucified. That's, he told Peter how he would die. And he would end up crucified. And church history tells us that when the time came for Peter to be martyred, that he did not want to be martyred right side up because he didn't feel like he deserved to be martyred in the the same uh, way that his, uh, his master was. And he requested to be crucified upside down. And so they crucified him upside down. From beginning to end, following the day of Pentecost, he's an entirely different man. So what Peter needed in order to become this different man was not more love for Jesus. He already had that. Uh, He needed power. He needed the power to be a witness. And it is that baptism with the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about that gives that to us. Now you have Christians that are going to uh, not fight and argue over, uh, you know, that... You have Christians that say, well, in terms of the Holy Spirit, every Christian gets everything related to the Spirit at the moment of, of their conversion. And, uh, and so the Holy Spirit comes in us and He comes upon us, as the Bible describes should be our experience with the Holy Spirit. And yet there are uh, uh, two times in the, in the book of Acts where people were born again at one moment in time, indwelt by the Holy Spirit and then received the baptism with the Holy Spirit sometime after. So it is a possibility. And the thing that we want to look at related to our own lives is to to look and see in our lives tonight, if we look and say, I love God. I love Him. He's been so good to me. He's invested so much in my life. I want to be a spiritual dynamo for Him. I want to stand. I don't want to deny Him. But every time I get put in this place, I cave under the the pressure of things. And I cry bitter tears, if not outwardly, inwardly, of this this way that I deny Him in my, my life. And what a person needs in that, in, in, in that need where somebody says, this is who I am. 
but I don't want to be this, this Christian. I don't want that quality of Christian life. And the answer is always to ask God and say, would you baptize me with your Holy Spirit? Would you give me the power to live the life that you want me to live and the life that I see in the Scriptures? And it's all there for the asking. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We don't have to ask for the Holy Spirit when we're born again. That just happens. Asking related to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So the main thing is not this and that and all the theology of it. Well, theology is good, but all of the trying to get it into some kind of a cubbyhole. The question is, does my life look more like Peter here or more like Peter as we see him in the book of Acts? And the single great event in his life was that baptism with the Holy Spirit. And I remember it related to my own life. There was a gap of time between those events within my life. I love the Lord. I loved him, and I, I remember um, just uh, uh, so excited to be a Christian and growing like crazy and all. And there just came a, a point where I said, Lord, I'm going to need to start enjoying this, or I don't know that I'm going to make it. And I, just, I needed the power to live the life. I'd, I'd already attempted to live the Christian life in my own strength before, and, and you fail miserably related to it. And it's Romans chapter 7, the, the good that I will to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, that I do. And then you go into Romans chapter 8, which is all about the Holy Spirit, and then there's the victory that is found there, the place of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. And it's just there for the asking. It's just there for the the receiving. And Peter is one of the great examples of it in the Scriptures, the before and the after picture, uh, so that uh, we can know that it's available for uh, us um, as uh, as well. And so we'll stop there tonight and uh, and pick things up in verse 63 uh, next time as we head formally into uh, Jesus's trials. I'll tell you, with the, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, it was like, I mean, being born again is its own thing. I mean, there's nothing that compares to that. But being baptized with the Holy Spirit is, I mean, the blues got bluer and the greens got greener. And it doesn't mean we won't fail. Peter will fail. He will make a mistake even recorded in the book of Acts where he kind of aligns with the Judaizers against the Gentiles and and then Paul shows up, and what in the world are you doing? And then he, he does what he's supposed to do. So it doesn't make us perfect, but it gives us the power to live the Christian life that we want to live. And, and it is not, God not only God giving us the will to do, the desire to live this life, but then the power to do it as well. If you sit here tonight and you say, um, I, I, uh, I've never experienced that dynamic. My Christian life is one of constant failure. I love God. I know I'm on my way to heaven. He's been nothing but good to me. I have no intention of walking away from Him. But my life is one big yo-yo spiritually. There is no consistency in my life spiritually. And the answer to that is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And if you've never prayed for that, you can pray for that on your own anywhere. 
uh, in your car uh, before you leave here tonight or at home. Or there'll be folks up in front immediately after the service, and we'd love to answer your questions and uh, pray for you related to that as well. No one can live the Christian life in our own strength, no matter how strong we are, how confident we are, uh, as, as Peter can show us. Those motivations will not work. They'll all crash and burn. It takes the power that comes from the Holy Spirit, power that God is eager to give. If you sit here tonight and you are not yet a Christian, tonight's the night to become a Christian then, and we'll be up in front, as I mentioned, and we would love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin a relationship with God, the relationship with God that you've been created for. If you need prayer for any need in your life, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together and let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we're so thankful as you um, wrote this book from Genesis to Revelation that uh, you put all the warts in there, warts and all, in terms of the description of what uh, each of us run into as Christians and what every servant of yours runs into as we endeavor to serve you and as you refine our lives and take away the chaff that is worthless in order that we might be a vessel that brings you even more glory. And we thank you for Peter here in, in all of this. And I pray and we pray for one another. And we pray for anyone that has experienced some great failure uh, within their life and to have you just infuse hope into their relationship with you, hope into their future, that what you did with Peter, you will also do with them. Lord, would you speak to any of our hearts individually if we lack uh, the full dynamic of what you have provided to us as Christians by your Holy Spirit, if we lack the baptism with the Holy Spirit, that we might pray and receive that from your throne tonight so that we do not have a Christian life that is marked by continual bitter tears. And we ask these things, Lord, even as we thank you for this time together tonight in your word. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.